This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say these are unprecedented times in our world, and I sincerely hope the time you spend with this podcast brings some solace to your day. One of the reasons I love talking about literature in all its forms is that it illuminates our human journey and our universal longings. It brings us together and unifies rather than divides. So thank you for tuning in, and as Charles Dickens wrote, have a heart that never hardens, and a temper that never tires, and a touch that never hurts. And I wish for you to be well, be safe, be healthy. Coming up, an interview with Emily Nemens, author of The Cactus League. I don't want to say I'm an objective editor of my own work, but I'm able to remove a bit of that subjectivity and that emotion of going back into a manuscript and look at it and just be like, all right, this is good. How can I make it better? To use a vascular metaphor, you know, everything from the capillary kind of line work up through uh, the major arteries. We'll be back with Emily Nemens in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Emily Nemens, writer, illustrator, and editor. 
Nemitz began her writing career as an editor and has worked as co-editor for the Southern Review and is currently the editor of the Paris Review. Her short stories have appeared in Blackbird, Esquire, the Iowa Review, and N Plus One, among other publications. Her novel, The Cactus League, mirrors the nine innings of a baseball game. It is told in nine sections that weave together the characters, settings, and dramas within and surrounding a baseball team called the Los Angeles Lions during spring training in Phoenix, Arizona, just after the 2008 recession. Each section looks at a different element of what goes into the sport of baseball, athletically and culturally, and includes characters such as the wives of the players, a batting coach, the star player, a legendary sports agent, and more. Between each section, a sportscaster narrates the goings-on of the spring training while offering a wider perspective of the cultural moment along with a greater sense of history for the game, the individuals, and the landscape. We began the discussion with Emily Nemens sharing what excited her about baseball beginning when she was a young girl. I love baseball as a sport. I think the pace of it is great. The experience of going to the stadium is really wonderful. Um, you know, it's it's a social outing with whoever is sitting to your left and your right. And hopefully you like at least one of those people, right? And, um, you know, so even before I was really aware or attuned to all the athleticism and the strategy behind the game, it was this chance to go hang out with my dad for three hours. Um, and... And so I love that. Um, I think something magical about spring training for me, particularly growing up in Seattle and having my home field be an indoor stadium is uh, it was outdoors. It was sun shining. It was bright. It was, you know, 85 degrees and in the middle of March and the stadiums were smaller. So you were able to get up close and personal with um with the athletes in a way that you just can't in a major league stadium, even back, you know, in the early nineties, you know, there's a line in chapter two about grubby fingered four footers. And I was definitely one of those little kids just like waiting around, hoping to get signatures and, you know, in spring training, you might. So I think that was an early an initial appeal. And then, you know, that by rote and repetition, we didn't go down to Arizona every spring, but, we did every few years. And then when I lived in New York and my dad was still in Seattle, Phoenix was kind of sort of in the middle. And so we'd continue to go down to spring training through my twenties. And I also noticed, you know, not only is it this intimate baseball experience, it's kind of like the carnival, like there's all these stag parties coming in. There's like a really big golf circuit. Uh, there's a lot of other like father, son and father, daughter groups there, but it's, uh, you know, a million people show up to watch practice baseball. And so the the swirl and the energy of all of these people converging was also something that I thought was a really interesting phenomenon and would be fun to write about. And then that other part of your life is is writing and and visual art. Tell me a little bit about the development of that part of your life. I studied visual art and art history in undergraduate, but I had a manuscript going all the time and I had a great mentor in Michael S. Harper, the poet. But I don't think I really took myself seriously and really put my nose down to do the work until I, at 28, decided to leave New York City and get an MFA in creative writing at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. Um, as you might imagine, going from 
Williamsburg, Brooklyn, sort of, you know, this hip job working in the arts in New York City to um, Baton Rouge, just, you know, sort of small city in the deep south was a bit of a dunk tank, but it also gave me a chance to really commit to writing fiction. I started thinking that first year, what's something that I could write about for three years? What's something that could turn into a thesis? What's something that I care about enough that would uh, light the fire for me, but also with something that, you know, looking beyond myself, thinking about not my audience, but thinking about, you know, what I've read and what I find compelling and where could there be more? Where could I contribute something? Um, you know, baseball literature jumped out right away. So I started writing a very, very, very early version of the book in 2011. Um, and Tammy in chapter two was actually where that started. Uh, that doesn't really get to your question about visual arts. I, I've had this drawing practice um, all along. You know, my senior thesis, quote unquote, was a painting show. I had been doing big oil paintings and then big, um, not as big, but big goopy paintings on wood, um, things that just really didn't translate to a New York apartment and or moving across the country several times for graduate school. So I switched over to an illustration practice and, and water-based painting and drawing. So a lot of watercolor and a lot of pen and ink. And, you know, for me, it's still, it's a reprieve and a respite after writing. It's like a different part of my brain. So I've done a few things that are visual arts and written word together, a few comics, but more often I sort of toggle between the two or use the vocabulary of one to help get me through uh, a problem of the other. Um, and so they, they help with problem solving and inspiration and cross-pollinate that way. Let's talk a little bit about the structure because I, I imagine the structure also had something to do with your imagining of these stories. So basically you tell this in, in nine innings. So there's nine kind of major scenes that involve someone who's either tangentially or at the heart of this baseball team, the Lions, who maybe plays for it or owns it or the wives of it or someone who's at the stadium who plays the organ are the stories. And then they're all linked by a journalist who is sort of has insider knowledge of what's going on at this spring training and with Jason Goodyear, kind of the central character who is kind of falling apart, but is also a star in baseball. And you go back and forth. Can you tell me about how you how you decided that this was the structure? And then, you know, you chose very specific characters, like I was saying, the organ player or the wives or the pitching coach or the owner or this kind of hanger on Tammy that you mentioned, how did you kind of come to that? I love a long short story. I love Alice Monroe and Deborah Eisenberg. And I initially um, really wanted to build out these long world building stories, um, you know, where a whole character was introduced, had a pivotal moment and then catharsis, right? So when I realized, you know, rather than having independent and standalone stories, um, I wanted to have a novel where they were strung together and affected one another, as I talked about earlier. Um, I wanted to preserve that momentum and as much of that structure and payout of the short story form as I could. And so I was thinking a lot about sort of 
internal structure, I, I don't want to belabor the baseball metaphor, but when you think about, um, you know, pitch versus at bat versus uh, inning, um, I think, you know, that sort of helps in terms of scene, section, and story. And so I, I wanted I wanted those chapters to, to feel not quite discrete elements, but to have the momentum and, and preserve as much of what I love about a story as they could. Um, and then in terms of the constellation of characters, um, it was it was tricky to sort of pick the ones that made the most sense. And uh, I, I want to thank my editor at FSG, Emily Bell, for that, because, you know, up, when I sold the book to her, there was a different chapter eight. Um, and, you know, we talked a lot about who absolutely needed to be in this book and what those perspectives were. Um, she also wanted to, or she proposed getting rid of another chapter and, you know, that, that query, uh, made me realize how important that character was to the narrative. Um, so I wanted to pick nine characters and nine perspectives that at one, at once felt diverse enough and different enough to build out the whole universe or ecosystem. Obviously there's, you know, an infinite number of perspectives. I have the organ player, but I could have also had the announcer. You know, I have uh, a super fan who's a woman, but I could have had a super fan who's a guy. Um, I have one partial owner, I could have had another, but, but to build out sort of the dimensionality of this ecosystem by selecting different aspects of the team. And the team, I, I mean that in the broadest sense in terms of the people who care about the Los Angeles Lions. So um, so I was looking for diversity in that way, but I also wanted to have enough um, overlaps and, and resonances that it felt like that there would be resonance and echoes across the chapters. You know, more than one character here is aging out of the game. Um, and and thinking about sort of uh, end of life, um, or maybe not life, but end of viability and, and what that feels like. And so suddenly that's a theme that I feel confident saying is a part of the book, right? Is, is losing one sort of primacy in one's world. And then, you know, um, the inciting incident of the book is this new baseball stadium, the spring training facility has opened. It's called Salt River Fields. And so the like, Los Angeles Lions have a new home. And so all of a sudden, you know, home becomes something I want to explore and emphasize. So we go to Michael Taylor's home and he's been coming to the same place. This is a batting coach who's been coming to the same house in Scottsdale for decades. And, you know, baseball wives, these sort of young wives that have um, join their husbands in Arizona, but, you know, they might have to maintain three different households over the course of the year because they have their home field, their Arizona home, and wherever she and her husband actually are from, you know. So, so thinking about building homes, establishing homes, preserving homes, protecting them, become another sort of cluster of resonance. So, that was just, you know, trial and error and rereading the book, you know, half a million times to figure out what felt right, what didn't feel redundant, but did feel like it was amplifying one another um, in terms of the build out and um, the ordering of the chapters. In terms of those interstitials and our narrator, 
I am such a fan and a defender of the short story, but I know one of the things that readers might find challenging about short stories is the, you know, that you have to start again and, and rebuild your world and understand the system in place for every story, begin that anew. And I, I like doing that work. I think that's important work to do, but I think also um, if you're trying to preserve momentum and, and, and lead through a complicated system of event and have some of that independence of character, but also orient readers towards what's come through, what's the same, what's changing um, as they enter into a new chapter, uh, sort of a, a bit of signposting and wayfinding in those interstitials was going to be helpful. And um, I tried on a whole lot of different voices for that. Um, I, and, you know, it was feeling a little bit like a, you know, the postmodern version of a Greek course at a certain point. And then I realized, you know, what is the 2011 equivalent to a Greek course? They, they know everything. They're a little bit out of time um, or atemporal in that way. Um, they're a little bit omniscient and uh, they can say what, sum up what's happened and maybe predict what's to come. And that sounded a lot like a sports journalist to me. And, um, you know, thinking about 2011 and the book talks not a little bit about the economy and, and the fallout of the Great Recession, um, you know, journalists felt that acutely as well. And so finding a, imagining that Greek course as a sports writer who, who no longer had a beat, um, no longer had his credential or really his, his reason um, for, for getting up and going to the stadium uh, made, made for a natural fit. I want to talk a little bit about the, the sports writer. One of the things that he brings is almost like this, this glacial geologic view of, of time. He, he talks about Arizona and the country at, uh, like at the time of the uplift and the glaciers and how it formed. So you get this kind of sense of time. But I also thought he, because I think of sports, of baseball, everyone does, is the great kind of American pastime and that it is America. I felt like when he was talking about the formation of the land and he was also talking about some natives who lived around Arizona called the Hohokam, that he was also getting at something else really fundamentally American. My goal with those, that sort of long view I, I wanted, you know, he he's the one to say it, but sort of the media cycle and um, the American self-importance, which, you know, goes back to occupying um, native land and displacing first um, communities across the American West. But um, this sort of insistence on primacy, um, everything from, you know, breaking news and the way that, um, you know, the current media cycle talks about what's happening today and how it's, you know, the biggest and the best or um, the worst, whatever it might be, but sort of forgetting the history of place and the history of us, um, the history of um, communities. I think that um, that gets pushed aside pretty aggressively. And, you know, this guy who's lost his role in that news cycle is having this sort of come to whatever 
Jesus or some other higher power moment of understanding for himself or trying to understand um, a different scale of storytelling in a different timeline and, and why thinking about whatever is happening now in the context of that much longer timeline is important. Um, so that's what I was, I was trying to get at. And, you know, I think it's, it's the interpersonal in terms of, you know, the, uh, the big news stories of the day. And it, it's also about place for me, um, thinking about, you know, monumental architecture and uh like I said the stadium sort of rising from the ashes of the recession that they're able to build something monumental when you know all construction has stopped and and the idea of these cities growing has sort of stumbled um that is meaningful of course like there's a new stadium there's a new economic engine there's a new home field like that's all meaningful but but this place has been home to so many for so long but at a different scale with a different kind of amplification and different kind of advocacy, right? And and even before it was home to humans, it was uh, a vibrant, exciting, geologically rich place. And, um, and the scale of evolution of that geology, I think makes, I mean, the fact that just like plates came together and a mountain range rose, uh, that makes a 10,000 seat stadium seem like no big deal. I wanted to to announce that juxtaposition. I don't know that people, you know, when we think about the built environment and the way our cities are changing, really often think about geological history of that place and the, and the evolution of it before we ever got here and how magnificent and meaningful that transformation has been. Let's talk about some of your characters. I mean, Jason Goodyear is at the heart of this. He's kind of the center of the the constellation and universe that everything seems to revolve around. Yeah, um, he is a sort of, you know, the baseball term is a generational player, like someone who, you know, will go into the Hall of Fame the first time voting's. He's eligible for voting MVP, gold glove, great arm, great bat, like really steady presence in the clubhouse. I was interested in finding sort of, you know, this is maybe setting myself up for for trouble or a challenge, but like finding the most milquetoast player and thinking about what's really going on under the surface. You know, I think baseball in particular, you know, we have these really big personalities in basketball and in football. You know, everyone knows all the proclivities of any given quarterback, but in baseball, you know, there are some big personalities, but the culture of it is really much more uh, to play things close to the chest. And, and, you know, a lot of athletes are like that. You know, I think of Mike Trout, I think of Derek Jeter, I think of, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. I think of, you know, these players that everything's going well for them on the field, but you know, we just don't know that much about them. I guess Griff, we knew more about, but, you know, the idea that um, they're either blank or boring or are a non-entity off the field, um, that's not true. It's just, you know, good, good coverage in terms of an agent or a coach or an apparatus protecting that athlete. I mean, maybe they really are that bland, but more often I think that they're just good at protecting their private lives. And, and that's harder than ever to do in, you know, the time of social media. And so 
I was interested in writing about someone who might seem boring, um, but of course he's not. And, and imagining what would happen to him over a season as that complicated life sort of came to the front and unfurled in a more and more public and more and more distressing way. So yeah, that's where Jason came from. And, you know, he, um, he'd been there from the very beginning, you know, I had, as I was building out my team and the, the universe, as you called it, like I had, you know, the whole roster of the Los Angeles Lions drawn out um, during the major league season, there's 25 players. Um, the expanded roster it's called is 40. Like I had all 40 guys and, you know, most of them had girlfriends or wives and I had this whole big list and he was always there. Um, but and he was always a really good athlete. But when I realized he was the best athlete, you know, the biggest financial investment for the team, the most, you know, steady guy in the clubhouse, just the emotional and performative and professional anchor of this group of men and women, it felt almost like, you know, sunflowers where they all sort of reorient towards where the sun is. And, and I, I understood how to make the story go. Your chapter on the wives probably as its as its own chapter i had lots of favorite characters but i loved that kind of study of these women and how kind of mean they were to each other underneath the surface and how they had to keep up with such appearances and the money and i'm just wondering about your your study of of the wives and girlfriends of these players yeah um that uh was a little bit uncanny. I know we'll talk later about, you know, chapters that were hard to write or sections that were hard to write. That came out kind of not fully formed. I mean, I worked really hard at it and chipped away at it, but I just had the sense of these women from the beginning. Um, I watched a lot of reality TV about wives and girlfriends and different sports. Um, I read a bunch as well you know, I think the idea that, you know, you've been sort of handpicked, it's this Cinderella story, right? That you're um, a normal, albeit young and pretty um, civilian, and then get picked to be, you know, the wife of a professional athlete. Um, You get a lot of money, you get, you know, this, this amazing household, but, you know, building temporary homes or, or figuring out how to be in between you know, this very lonely existence of running a household with your husband on the road for most of the year and also being a resource and support for him. Um, I think that's a really challenging spot to be in, even if you have, you know, unlimited financial resources and um, and a pretty perilous one. And, you know, I think most of us have been in situations where we have friends of convenience or friends of proximity you know, I think that baseball wives or, you know, wives and girlfriends of the the team or really any team have um, that so acutely, right? You've been displaced, you've been traded to a new town and uh, and suddenly, you know, this is your, your community and you've got to make the most of it. And hopefully there's someone in there that can be a, an actual support. Um, but often it's, you're just trying to keep up appearances. 
you know, some idea in that part that that is in the baseball itself is is sort of the inequity of you don't know how long you're going to be there. You, you know, at spring training, you have some guys who are just kind of trying to make it for the first time. And there's inequities in money. There's inequities of how much you get on the field, how they treat each other. You know, one example of a character that just broke my heart, but to me probably seemed like what it's like for most of the people who come was a character, Greg Carver, who had basically a shot elbow and was playing through the pain. Usually about six years, 70 guys show up for spring training trying to make 25 spots. And um, I had put 80 on the team. Um, I had a baseball sensitivity reader or like not sensitivity reader, but a retired manager actually read this and he's like they would never have 80 players show up that's too many except for this one spring we had 100 guys show up and it was crazy and I said so I wanted a little crazy in the book you know like I I wanted sort of the heightened curve of understanding that you know the winnowing would be that much more intense by you know 15 or 20 percent and and with Greg you know uh, starting pitchers versus relief pitchers. I mean, you look at a lineup of of a baseball team, and it looks like there's a ton of pitchers, right? But only um, four or five are starting pitchers, and you know, early on in most players' careers, they're either starting or they're relief. And so he actually has the potential of getting one of those starting spots, and that's the kind of pitcher he wants to be. And it doesn't look good for him. And you know. Um, the that chapter, he's coming back from a surgery called Tommy John surgery, which is where they replace a ligament in in your elbow. And you know, I read, I don't know what the statistics are for it right now, but when I started this chapter all those years ago, um, it had an eighty five percent success rate, and that's great that you know it extends the careers of eighty five percent of guys. But what what about the fifteen percent and you know extending careers versus what if someone's trying to make their career in the first place? That he had been at AAA and was just now trying to jump up to the majors. Like how far would you go, and how far would you push yourself in hopes of making that jump? Uh, were the questions that drove that chapter? I think about Greg all the time. You know he's self medicating along the way as a way to get through the season and get through his starts, and you know since I started that, the sort of the opioid crisis has risen around me and around us. And, you know, a a pitcher from the Angels OD'd last year and, you know, different circumstances, but not that dissimilar um, from what I imagined happening with Greg. And, well, that was upsetting and and felt a bit too too true. Um, But I do think you know, again, going back to empathy and the complications of these players' lives, you know, even even being an elite athlete or playing at this top level, job security or, or the potential of having this great job does not remove, remove a lot of sort of the universal struggles that we're all working through in terms of, of health and addiction and um, ambition, really. How did writing this change you at all? or how you saw the world, baseball metaphors, or just your writing practice? That's a great question. I became a lot more patient. You know, I think, you know, the workshop model going to graduate school is wonderful, but also the idea that you're producing so much writing um, that 
you know, you, you can and should be ready for prime time right away. Um, the fact that this took so long to get right that, you know, I thought it was, um, it was, you know, painstakingly slow and, you know, I had to become a better writer and better editor of my own work to get it where I needed to go. Um, and that just took years. Um, I, I think I'm profoundly more patient now than I was. I'm wondering just a little bit about your life as an editor. I'm wondering, you know, how this maybe changed you as an editor or just like, what is your life? What do you look for in the stories and how do you pick when you have probably thousands coming in? I mean, I think my life as a writer has changed and formed my life as an editor and that I'm a lot more, well, I think all, most editors are empathetic, but I, you know, have this firsthand experience of being on the other side of the desk and want that experience to be good for writers in a way that um, makes me, I think, a decent person to work with, I hope. Um, And the other way, you know, what about my editing makes me a better writer? You know, I have a lot less time for my writing, which is frustrating um, on a certain level. But at the same time, I get to spend all day thinking about fiction, um, not all day, every day. You know, I also do a lot to run the organization and support my peers and colleagues and um, you know, edit interviews and do things that are beyond sort of the, the line work of fiction, but that I get to think so much about the line work of fiction and, and structure and storytelling and the possibilities of the short form and the long form. You know, we, we do excerpt things um, occasionally, but all of that makes, it's just like this really, really, really big Swiss army knife, right? <laughs> um, I like have such a um, I feel like a pretty robust toolkit in terms of getting back into my manuscript, um, tightening things, improving them, doing a lot of line work, thinking about structure, thinking about form, thinking about dialogue, just like the, you know, all the elements sort of crystallize in front of me. It, it, I don't want to say I'm an objective editor of my own work, but I'm able to remove a bit of that subjectivity and that emotion of going back into a manuscript and look at it and just be like, all right, this is good. How can I make it better to use a vascular metaphor, you know, everything from the capillary kind of line work up through uh, the major arteries. Right. And um, I, I love that work and I love that I can do that work. That doesn't really help with generative <laughs> stuff. Right. Like I still have to write the drafts. I still have to have the ideas. Um, but, um, you know, for me, 95% of the work is, is after that first draft. And, and so I think that being an editor and having that skill set has, has made the revision process a whole lot better for me. Revision and expansion. Um, and uh, in terms of what I'm looking for, you know, I think as, as indicated maybe by the, the span of characters in the book, you know, that there is you know, there's a recovering jazz musician um, and a seven-year-old boy and um, 67-year-old batting coach. I'm a kind of eclectic, I'm an eclectic person. Um, I have eclectic tastes. And I think that is really true in terms of what I'm reading for and what I'm acquiring. But, you know, for me, probably the unifier is just a really great sense of line, um, a really good use of language, whatever that language is trying to achieve, if it's in plain style or something lyrical or, 
you know, something maximalist. I, I sort of have space for all of it as well, as long as it's well deployed, as long as it's intentional and well executed. I'm wondering, too, as an editor right now in the time of COVID-19, if because, you know, publication has such a lag, if you've thought at all about how, how can you get some of these stories and thoughts out there quicker and if that's kind of something that editors maybe around the country are thinking about right well you know we're lucky um we have the parish review daily and um, my colleagues who are the web editors are putting out work you know sort of in real time about covid um in that space i know there's a new um publication called Chronicles of Now that has fiction writers responding with stories to contemporary news. Um, you know, I'm, I wrote a book about the, you know, 2008 recession that was published in 2020. And obviously I think we're on the brink of another potential recession. So it feels uh, more prescient than I'd like. Uh, but I don't think I'm necessarily the one to lead the charge in terms of turning contemporary events into contemporary fiction I uh, personally am in a school of sort of it might take longer to percolate but that being said I'm still I have my eye out for interesting and and meaningful distillations of what we're going through you know what I can offer sort of in in real time is is literature you know meaningful contemporary literature putting out a new issue of the magazine um, supporting the work on the daily and and offering things from our 67 year archive that feel meaningful and particularly resonant now um whether it's you know stories of isolation or maybe it's stories of community building um and um thinking about the ways that literature can can support people not necessarily by um responding to it one-to-one but you know offering either inspiration motivation um empathy uh, and community feels important. So that's sort of where I've been leaning into my work. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to or influenced you as a writer? I pulled out my old dog-eared copy of John McPhee's Control of Nature. And, you know, this speaks to what we were talking about earlier about geological time and and the history of place. Um, And this is just from the very beginning of the book. 300 miles up the Mississippi River from its mouth, many parishes above New Orleans and well north of Baton Rouge, a navigation lock in the Mississippi's right bank allows ships to drop out of the river. In evident defiance of nature, they descend as much as 33 feet, then go off to the west or south. This, to say the least, bespeaks a rare relationship between a river and adjacent terrain, any river, anywhere, let alone the third-ranking river on Earth. The adjacent terrain is Cajun country, and in a geographical sense, the apex of the French Acadian world, which forms triangle in southern Louisiana with its base, the Gulf Coast, from the mouth of the Mississippi almost to Texas, its two sides converging up here near the lock and including neither New Orleans nor Baton Rouge. The people of the local parishes, Point Coupe Parish, Aloysius Parish, would call 
this the apex of Keith and country in every possible sense, no one more emphatically than the lockmaster, on whose face one day I noticed a spreading astonishment as he watched me remove from my pocket a red bandana. You are real kunas with that red handkerchief, he said. A kunas being a Cajun, I threw him an appreciative smile. So that's the opening of Control of Nature by John McPhee. Do you want to say a little bit more about why you chose that? Yeah, you know, um, John McPhee also wrote great sports writing. And, uh, but I, I just, I really fell in love with his reportage, you know, that he spoke about a land and its people, um, sort of the interactions and the interfaces between um, communities and the landscape and, and all sorts of places, you know, this, the control of nature is sort of about uh, the river not far from where I was in Baton Rouge. And so of course that was sort of an early and um, particularly uh, loud uh, connection for me, but I just, I think his capacity to write about place and the people who are trying to impact, inform, or change place is really dramatic. And, and his style of, of storytelling and, you know, that these are reported pieces, but that he is able to build out a narrative that reads, you know, as good as fiction um, in a lot of ways was a real inspiration. And so for me, when I was setting out to write this book, I wanted it to have the level of detail and and um, the understanding of place well enough that it could it you know aspire to feel like McPhee with this overlay of of character and and human drama that of course is fictionalized. Um, so that's John. <laughs> Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we were talking about Greg Carver earlier. Um, his chapter was one of the first I wrote, and his chapter was also the last one I finished. It was so hard to figure out the right balance of um, of pathos, I think, to, you know, he really wants to make the team. He has an arm injury. Like, that, that feels like the most straightforward thing in the world, but... Um, trying to figure out where to enter the story, where to exit it, um, how he is aware and um, processing his own position. Uh, I just couldn't get it right for the longest time. So I'm just going to read the first uh, few paragraphs of his chapter. A bright afternoon, blue sky, a sharp diamond of sun. Greg Carver is standing on the rubber and a man the catcher is jogging out to the mound. He knows this guy, this fire plug of a ball player with the long scar on his cheek, the flat nose of a boxer, a nickel gap between his front teeth. He knows him and his name is. The pitcher tries A's and then B's running down the alphabet, Casey Dave Elliott, as the man approaches, lumbering under his gear. J, Jimmy. Jimmy's wearing a lion's uniform as is Greg, white with black pinstripes, gold Los Angeles across the chest. This is surprising. The last time they played together, they were both stallions, black and gold too, but a different creature with hooves, a different place, Salt Lake, no red mountain rimming the horizon. What's up, Jimmy? Greg glances over his shoulder to the left field scoreboard 
It says that the Lions are winning over the Padres 5-2. It says it's the sixth that they have one out. He sees a runner on second, the man's hands on his hips. Greg turns back to Jimmy, who's staring at him. You okay, Carve? Jimmy asks. His gold catcher's mask is pushed high on his forehead, a halo. Why wouldn't I be okay? Greg rubs the ball hard with his thumb, trying to ignore the sensation in his elbow. It's coming back quickly, the pain a drumbeat that keeps hurrying up. Do you want to talk about why it was so challenging? I think I was overcomplicating it. Um, You know, I've read, I did a pretty deep dive into the medical conditions that could go wrong with Tommy John surgery. And I had a a more complicated uh, explanation of what was going on with his arm and, you know, his sensation and his understand maybe was more medically accurate but there's this thing called proprioception which is you know not being able to really feel your arm in space and I was trying to force this sort of technical situation onto um, the situation and um, and I I was also trying to force sort of a more explicit uh, reaction and um, symptoms, I guess, of the the addiction onto him as well. Um, and at a certain point, and uh, I also was trying to to build out a personal history that was, you know, towing towards melodrama on Greg and his life. And and what you know that chapter needed was like all of that by half. And I ended up taking you know, sort of the more technical aspects of his physical injury away, um, you know, that his arm hurts and he knows that uh, was enough. And I I took away some of the specifics of the addiction and, you know, I, and I took away a lot of that backstory. It's, you know, hinted at a little bit, but it didn't need to be there. And what had been like a maybe eight or 9,000 word chapter shrunk down to 5,000 words, and at the center of it, it's still, you know, as we were talking about before, I don't think really that much changed about his emotion or his ambition. Um, but I was getting in my own way in terms of the the most compelling way to tell that story. Where do you write? At home, at my desk, uh, or any particularly quiet desk space. I, I need not a lot of noise. <laughs> I need quiet. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I take my dog for a walk. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Either my agent or my boyfriend. How have you dealt with rejection? I've dealt with it with whiskey, but uh, the better solution is revision. Usually I put the manuscript away, I come back and I figure out how to make it better. And what is your favorite word? I think it's going to be a color. Um, This is the art historian talking Maybe cerulean, uh, that really beautiful blue. I I like colors because they can be adjectives, but they're nouns. And I think we all have an image of what cerulean could be. And if you don't, you should imagine it because it's a beautiful color. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. It was really wonderful to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Mitzi. Thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Emily Nemens, author of The Cactus League. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Ben Fountain, whose novel Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk features Thanksgiving Day football and a sharp commentary on America's war in Iraq. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interviews that patrons will receive as extras include an additional 25 minutes collectively of interviews with Carolyn Forche, Anna Solomon, and Anne Napolitano, and writing tips from some of these same authors. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Sue Monk Kidd, Vanessa Hua, Anne Enright, Mary South, Tara Shea Nesbitt, and Lori Gottlieb. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy out there, and I hope this podcast makes the time at home more pleasant. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.